Last week we began uh, speaking on the second commandment, which is found in Exodus chapter 20. We talked about the issue of idolatry and traced that through the Bible from the Old Testament to the New. We also talked about the host of heaven that uh, the idolaters are under and explained that concept. Today, we're going to look at the rest of the second commandment and we get into an issue here about these generational curses. Now, I'm going to say up front that 90% of the teaching people here about generational curses is false. In fact, the false teaching is so predominant uh, claiming that if you had some unknown ancestor several generations past that may have done some sort of an occult thing that you have a demon afflicting you and you need a shaman or, or prophet to figure out what that was and so on. And Dick and I are actually doing a radio series on that that will be dealing with those false teachings and it will be broadcast, I think it's starting to be broadcast right now on one place and then a few weeks from now it will start on our CIC ministry site. So you can listen to the radio shows if you want to hear about the false ideas. But today I'm going to preach you the true one. I hope. (laughs) At least you better hope I do. (laughs) All right. You came here to hear the truth today, I'm sure. Let me give you an overview of where we're going with this. Idolatry, as we saw last week, will invoke uh, the visitation of iniquity to future generations. God's hesed, that's the Hebrew word, it's pronounced with a hard H, which I don't know how to say, so I'll just say it in the hesed, reaches farther than his anger, his loving kindness or mercy. Moses pleads for God to protect his own honor and show hesed to wayward Israel. People are responsible for their own sin. We're going to see that. Even when suffering because of the sins of ancestors, we should pray and trust God. I'm going to take you into Ezekiel and Daniel to show how people responded when they actually were suffering because of things ancestors had done. And then we're going to talk about blessing and cursing and point out that these are relational issues, not symptomatic. Okay, so let's begin. Let's go to Exodus 20. Reiterating what I preached last week, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So idolatry, as I said last week, is, is prohibited, that these idols are representative of gods and deities and spirit beings that are wicked and evil, and that we don't want to be under those. We need to be under God, the true God of the Bible. Now let's go to this section that we're really going to dig into today. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. I looked up the term for visiting in my resources my, uh, on my computer, and the range of meaning is so massive Looking up the Hebrew didn't help me one bit. It could mean about 30 different things, literally. So that, what that means when, when there's a large range of meaning, which is common in Hebrew, 
that we need to take this concept and go through the Old Testament and see how it applied and how it was interpreted. And one of the great things that we can do when preaching the Ten Commandments or anything from Exodus is consult Deuteronomy, which we did last week, and I'm going to do again this week, because Moses, before he died, preached a sermon to Israel, which is our book of Deuteronomy. And in the sermon, he uh, applied many of the laws and teachings that you find in Exodus. So we can consult that and find out what this visiting means and how it works and what Moses understood this to mean. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those that hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands. Now, first of all, notice the contrast between God's greater mercy, because the, the mercy extends to the thousands and there's a limitation on the judgment to the third and fourth generation. Now, it's been pointed out that three and four generations in a nomadic society in the ancient world would be the number of generations living under one, in one household. So all of these people would actually be living in a household, and so therefore whatever idolatry that the head patriarch or the head person of the house did would be immediately brought right into the household where the three and four generations are. So they would be immediately influenced by it. And that's certainly something to keep in mind here. But loving kindness is the New American Standard translation of this word hesed. And the, the Septuagint has the translation mercy. And this also has a range of meanings. And there have been many theological discussions and even books written about what this word means. And some have proposed that it means covenant faithfulness. My, one of my Old Testament professors who was on teams for translating the Bible actually said that this is a very difficult word to find an equivalent in English. And he suggested covenant faithfulness, but you certainly get the idea of mercy. Now, the thing I like about the New American Standard is it just translates it loving kindness and does so consistently, so you always know that you're dealing with the Hebrew. But at the very least, this is God showing grace and mercy to those who are in covenant relationship with him. It is God bringing a people to himself, forgiving their sins, and making them his people. That's what it's like to be shown mercy loving kindness, hesed. And this will happen to thousands. Now, notice it said, uh, to those who hate me. Let me explain hate as it's used in the Bible in this sort of a context. The, the, the term hate is applied at times when what you really have is just ambivalence. For example, it said that um, Jacob loved one of his wives and hated Leah. But, but it didn't, there's no evidence in the text that he had this strong emotion, hatred. It's just he gave preference. Now, what this means is if the relationship calls, calls for love and commitment and you have anything less than that, the less than that is taken as hatred. Now, why would that be? Well, just imagine a husband and a wife. What, what, a, what if your spouse um, uh, who married you 
was totally ambivalent towards you. Say, well, you're okay. I don't have anything against you. If you're the spouse, you're going to take that as hatred. No, you married me, and, and you made a commitment to love me. The relationship of marriage is a covenant relationship that's predicated on a commitment and on love. And if you're ambivalent and, and treat me just like a stranger or anybody else on the street, even if you don't have this strong emotion of hate, in the Old Testament sense of this, this would be called hate. All right. So if Yahweh comes on the scene of history, takes a people out of Egypt, takes them through the Red Sea, provides manna, provides water from the rock, speak to, speaks to them on Sinai, gives them a mediator, Mo, Moses, calls them to himself, and he says, you will be my people, I will be your God, I will bring you into the land, and I will keep the promises I made to your father Abraham. And the people say, whatever. They hate. That's, called, that's counted as hate, because it's not the response that's necessitated by the nature of the covenant and the relationship. It's absolutely unacceptable. And so to hate God is to fail to give an appropriate response to the relationship. Fail to practice covenant faithfulness. And so it says that if they do that, he's going to visit the iniquity to the third and fourth generation. There are severe consequences. Now let's see what it means for God to be a jealous God. I have a slide here that unpacks that a little bit because um, we'll talk about this in the theology class. I was, Eric and I had lunch to just plan out the theology class he's going to teach starting in, or on apologetics starting in um, January, and he'll talk about analogical language, but that's what, exactly what this is. God being jealous isn't exactly the same thing as a human being je- jealous. It's analogical, not exactly the same. So when God is jealous, it's not in the human sense of suspicious or distrustful or wrong, wrongly envious of others. And here's what Walter Kaiser, the uh, great Old Testament theologian, says. It's that attribute that demands exclusive devotion. God de- demands exclusive devotion. That at- attribute of anger against all who oppose him. And that energy he expended on vindicating his own people. That's what it means that God is a jealous God. Now let's go to Exodus 34. Okay, we've covered the, the passage. Now I'm going to take you on a trip through the Bible today, and we're going to see what this third and fourth generation, this visiting the iniquities, what does it mean? How was it applied in Israel's history? And what does it tell us about God? And how do we apply it to our lives? That's what we're going to do. Now, Exodus 34 is very important because that's when Moses was up on Sinai and God told Moses that he couldn't see everything of God, but that he'd hide him in the cleft of the rock and pass by, and then he would see that much. And when God came by Moses, he spoke. And this is what Moses heard when God came by. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Now that's Yahweh when I have the caps there. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Has said in a myth, loving kindness and truth. 
when Ryan taught through the Gospel of John, he pointed out that when it was announced, when Messiah came on the scene of history, it was announced that he was full of grace and truth. And that's probably an allusion to this. That gives us a clue that the term grace in the New Testament is very equivalent to hesed in the Old. So we see that the Lord is gracious, compassionate, loving, and abounding in truth. Continuing on, this is what God said to himself. This is what God said about himself to Moses, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So here there's clearly... um, uh, a preeminence to the loving kindness, to the mercy, to the forgiveness, the thousands, but a warning that no one should take advantage of that idea. In other words, people shouldn't get the idea because God is merciful, because he's loving, because he shows kindness, that therefore I can snub God, commit idolatry, and go off and become a covenant breaker. Because he also promised that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So there's a, there's a greater mercy, but a very real warning against breaking covenant. Now, there, you can look this up yourself. I don't have time to get into this. But in Psalm 89, 29 through 35, if you want to jot that down, if you're taking notes, Psalm 89, 29 to 35, there's an application of this concerning David. And the point would be that David has been given a promise to have a man sitting on the throne. And that David was faithful to God, or I should better say God was faithful to David, forgave him. But David, as history would go on, will have many unfaithful sons. Okay, And those rebellious kings that that would come along are judged by God. But but the thousands here applies to the long-term program whereby God is going to have a man to sit on the throne of David, which is Messiah. So the thousandth generation means God will not forget his promise to the patriarchs. God will not forget Israel. God will not forget his promise to David. Now let's go to Numbers 14. Here's where we find, I think, a fascinating application of the second commandment and the revelation that was given on Sinai in Exodus 34, by Moses. This is how we learn theology. Let Moses interpret Moses. Let Moses' sermon inform us about what he meant by the second commandment. Now, to give you the background, I can't, it would be great to preach the whole chapter, Numbers 14, but that's not feasible. So let me tell you what happened. Joshua and Caleb and the others went into the land. They came back, and only Joshua and Caleb believed God. The rest of them gave a bad report, and the people grumbled and murmured and said, why did God bring us out of Egypt? Did he just bring us out here to kill us in the wilderness? And they had this revolt and this murmuring, and they don't want the relationship with Yahweh because of their unbelief, because they thought the giants were too great in the land and the obstacles were too great. And after seeing all of those miracles, after being delivered from Egypt by the plagues, after the uh, the firstborn of Egypt were killed, and they went. Out, the blood covered them, and they came out, and they went through the 
see, and they were brought to God and given the great law that God gave Moses, they're saying, we don't want the promise. We don't want the promise that you gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We don't want to go into the land. And so they were in rebellion. And God threatened to wipe them out. I'll just said to Moses, I'll wipe them out. We'll start over with you. And so Moses pleaded for mercy on Israel. Let's see what happens now. Okay, they're in rebellion. They're murmuring. God's going to wipe them out. Now, verse 15, Numbers 14, 15, we'll pick this up. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because Yahweh could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. So in other words, he pleads that God would protect his own honor and and the fame of his own name by showing mercy. Then he says, but now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you declared. Now, this is a very, very amazing passage. The power, how is God going to express his power? He just threatened to wipe out the entire people, and you would think, boy, asking God for power right now might be a bad thing. (laughs) See how powerful Yahweh is. They all go up in smoke. But, But... Moses knew God's nature because he'd been on Sinai and he heard God speak when he passed by. Let's see what happens. Look at what he says. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generations. Moses quoted back to God what God had said to Moses on Sinai. I know your nature. This is what you told me. This is who you are. And then he pleads, based on what he heard on Sinai, here's what he pleads for. Quote, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your hesed, loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So... Now we're learning something about theology here in biblical interpretation. How did Moses understand the saying that God shows loving kindness to thousands and he's bonded in loving kindness, but he visits the iniquity? He understood it as God being a merciful God who limits the extent of his punishment. It's a limit on punishment, not an extension uh, beyond what would be right or reasonable. So he says, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of the people as you've forgiven them from Egypt till now. Then I'm going to say verses 20, 29, and 31, because, again, it's a whole chapter that you can read on your own. So here's the Lord's response to Moses pleading based on the idea of the iniquities to the third and fourth generation. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. So first of all, he relented on a threat to wipe them out and pardon them. But he says this, your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Then he says in verse 31, your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, 
because of their unbelief, they said, if we go, the, our children will be killed. I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. So here, God pardons their sin and allows them to live on, but only in the wilderness until they die. And then he brings the children into the land. So in this case, the children are the ones who receive the promise. Even though it said he visits iniquity to the third and fourth generation, God's greater loving kindness triumphed over justice by giving mercy, and the children were spared from suffering the consequence of the sins of the fathers. So there's an application of that that would emphasize mercy. The children actually go on the land. God didn't wipe them out. God didn't make them suffer because of their parents' unbelief and rebellion. It brings pardon. Now let's talk about the pagans. I'm going to go into Jonah. I only have one slide here, but let me just tell the story. I'm trusting, if you've never read the book of Jonah, do it. It's a wonderful book. Amazing story. Most of you probably have. You know, Jonah was told by God to go, and he didn't want to, and he ended up in a ship, and he went down to Tarshish, down into the ship, down into the belly of the fish, down, down, down. That's where he went when he ran from God. And then he gets spit up out on the land. And so now that he's there, he decides, well, I guess I better preach to these Assyrians. Why did, why did Jonah not want to go preach to the Assyrians? Well, this verse is going to tell us why. But he hated them. And if you study the history of Assyria in this time of, the, of history, they were wicked. They were bloodthirsty. They were gruesome. They killed everybody in their path. They, they plundered, and then they wouldn't even, they desecrate the dead bodies of the people they killed by hanging them on posts. They sharpened posts, put them all around the city, and hang the dead people they killed on the posts so that it terrorized anybody still alive. These, were, these are not anybody that you would want to know. You would not want them for neighbors. These Assyrians are about as wicked as anybody could possibly be. And so Jonah was sent to warn them that, if, that God was going to wipe them out. But they repented. From the, least, from the greatest to the least, the Assyrians repented. And God forgave them. So here's Jonah. Now, Jonah was mad. He didn't, he, he, he didn't like the fact that God did that. So here's what Jonah says in Jonah 4.2. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because he's quoting what God told Moses on Sinai. He knew what, he knew what God said. And he prayed to the Lord. And he said, please, Lord... This is Yahweh. Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He quotes Moses from, from Exodus 34, saying, I knew. See, because Jonah knew there's only one reason to send a prophet to Assyria, because God intended to show them mercy. And he didn't want that. And God forgave them. Every one of those forgiven Assyrians had fathers and grandfathers who were wicked, murderous people. But God forgave them. And when you read this, and people talk about generational curses and the demons are going to get you and Satan's going to get you, if you just start reading this and applying it, you find out that the real issue is that God limits his judgment 
and he shows mercy. And, and there's no determinism. There's no fatalism. There's no injustice. There's no fatalistic trap where someone is forced to go out and sin because their parents did, so they have to too. That's not the message here. I'm going to show you how it does apply to children, though, and, and I'm going to make applications. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 24. There's just some principles from the Torah that we need to take in, into consideration. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So there's a principle that we need to keep in mind. Jeremiah comments on this. And if you want to look this up in, in your own concordance, you will be astounded how often that Sinai event is reiterated in Israel's history. It's in the Psalms. When they say that you show loving kindness to thousands, they repeat that over and over in the Psalms and in the prophets. Because they knew, the godly Israelites who believed Moses knew that that was significant. When Moses was right there with God himself and God explained himself, this is what God said about himself. So they kept that in mind because they, they knew with whom they're dealing, the God who appeared to Moses. Now look at Jeremiah 32, 18 and 19, who, who shows, has said, loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Same idea. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. The point being that Jeremiah saw no um, conflict or contradiction between the visitation of iniquities and individual accountability. Both things are true. Now, let's go back to Deuteronomy. Follow me, and this will become clearer and clearer. Deuteronomy 7, 9 and 10. Know therefore that the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness, here it is, to a thousand generation. Now I'm talking about a thousand generations. With those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces. So again, you have the idea of uh, personal responsibility. The covenant breakers, the idolaters, are repaid to their faces to, re- to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So there's a direct repayment or visitation to the person who makes themselves a covenant breaker. Now we're going to go into Ezekiel, okay? I told you we're going to take a stroll through the Bible today. But I think at the end, you'll see exactly what this means. Now I want to, what I want to do in Ezekiel is make an application in their history where the sons actually were suffering the consequences for the sins of their parents. And this is an application of the second commandment. This literally happened, okay? What happened in the time of Ezekiel was that they were in captivity in Babylon. The reason they were in captivity in Babylon was because generations of Israelites before them were idolaters. 
They had a few revivals like under Hezekiah, but they kept going back to idolatry. They broke covenant, and they put themselves under the hosts of heaven, if you remember last week's sermon. And so finally, God did what he promised to do and turned them over to the hosts of heaven, and they went under the pagans. And now they're sitting in Babylon under, under the idolaters ruling over them. Okay, but the generation living in Babylon weren't, weren't the ones who did the idolatry. It was the ones before them. All right? So what's going on here in Ezekiel was the people of Israel interpreted the visiting of the sins to the third and fourth generation as applying to their situation, and they were saying, Later in Ezekiel 18, I don't have time to go there, they say, Yahweh's ways are not right. That's literally a quote of the people. Yahweh's ways are not right. This isn't right. It isn't fair. And Yahweh says, no, it's your ways who are not right, not mine. So they're questioning God. And so here's a proverb they use to explain their complaint to God about the fact they're suffering for their parents' sins. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? They say, it's not fair to worry in captivity. It would be like a sinner saying, it's not fair because if I would have been Adam, I wouldn't have sinned. You'd put me back in the garden and give me my own trial. Well, that's what they're saying. It's not fair. And if you read the history of Israel, you would predict that they're going to be idolaters. That's what they did more than not. But here's the answer. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, said the Lord. The Lord said, the soul of sins will die. That's God's word. The soul of sins will die. Don't use the proverb. Don't complain about your situation. God had sent them a prophet, Jeremiah, and he said, you're going to be there for 70 years, serve the people where you are, and God is going to bring you back out. They had a role to play in Babylon. Now let's look at a better example than the people in Ezekiel. Look at Daniel. Daniel was there, and it wasn't Daniel's idolatry that made Daniel end up in Babylon. It was somebody else's. Daniel was faithful, but he was suffering. But he had a different attitude than those Israelites that Ezekiel quotes. Look at what Daniel says. He prays. Daniel mine is mostly a prayer. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. He understood the idea of corporate solidarity. He understood the idea that they were justly where they were because of the iniquities of his fathers or our fathers, but he prayed for Jerusalem. Daniel believed God. He had read Jeremiah, and he knew that the time was drawing near for them to be brought out of bondage. And then he, he, part of the answer is this beautiful prophecy, the, the revelation he gets at the end of Daniel 9. So if someone is suffering because of sins of previous generations, it does happen. Absolutely. I'm going to make some applications today to this. Absolutely. It is a great blessing. It's a wonderful blessing to be raised in a godly home. It's a wonderful blessing if your parents taught you the word of God. 
If your parents didn't throw you out to be under the host of heaven, but they gave you the word of God and taught you the gospel and taught you the ways of God, it's a great blessing. But you know what? Many people that have had that blessing have gone off into sin and lived for Satan. It's a terrible curse to be raised by pagans. It's a terrible curse if your parents are lawbreakers and rebellious and don't want to serve God and, and so on. But you know, many people that were raised by such parents are serving God today. So don't believe any of this determinism. So he prayed. Let's back to Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. Let's see what was said to the people who were complaining. The person who sins will die, says, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So here's my interpretation of this. We may suffer consequences because of what somebody else does, but we won't suffer guilt, personal guilt other than when we get to Adam and Christ. Then the guilt or the righteousness are imputed in Adam and Christ. I'll deal with that in a little bit. That's the principle. Verse 32. God has an answer. You don't like your circumstances. You don't like what your parents did. You don't like how you were raised. You don't like this and you don't like that. Okay, good. Here's the answer. The Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord, therefore repent and live. That's the answer. Repent and live. Join with Daniel and pray for Jerusalem. You're in Babylon, yes, and I told you you were going to be there for 70 years. That's where you are. Jeremiah told you, work for the city where you are, but don't complain to God about injustice. God's perfectly just in all of his ways. Repent and live. Now, you have people talking about these generational curses and people trying to get words of knowledge to find out why you're cursed. And we have people saying, uh, I, in this radio show that Dick and I did, I quoted some of these people that write books about generational curses, and they give lists of symptoms. Symptoms, all right? How do you know you're cursed? Well, you look for symptoms. Do you have bad eyesight? Well, you're, you're probably cursed. Do you get sick? Do you always short on money? Aha. Uh-huh. And they give a big list. So we talk about this on the radio. Symptom, symptom, symptom. Well, blessing and cursing are not symptomatic. They're relational. The person who is in rebellion against God and is a covenant breaker is cursed. Even if they're happy and healthy. The person who has come to God on his terms is blessed even if they're suffering. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the persecuted, and so on. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're blessed because they have a right relationship with God through Christ. Here's what it says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus bore all the curse, all the curses, on the tree for those who believe in him. He took the curse. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come 
to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. How do you know you're blessed if you've received the promise of the Spirit through faith? You have the blessing of Abraham. And that means that you are an heir of the promise, of the promises of God. You know, I don't know why Christians, I, I guess I do know, why, why do these other teachings come into the church? Telling, you know, why would you go around the country convincing Christians that they're cursed when God called them blessed? Well, this is my theme lately. Don't get tired of it, I hope. The theme is this. Outside of true Bible teaching, we're all pagans. And the tendency is to think like a pagan. Every pagan society has curses and curse breakers. Every pagan society has shamans that are able to go into the spirit world and see what's going on. And they have specialized knowledge, spiritual technology, that people will pay for in order to get out from under the curses. That's what pagans do. That's what pagans look like. If we don't listen to God, we start thinking like pagans, and we start acting like pagans. And we go back into the pagan worldview. The biblical worldview is the only escape from being under the stoichia, the hostile powers, the host of heaven that we were talking about last week, is to come to Christ and come under him and be seated with him in the heavenly places far above all principalities and powers. Let's have some applications now of this. I've got three here. We should turn from idols, and doing so will be a great blessing to our children. We should not presume on covenant blessings based on ancestry. Trusting the Lord is the only way to escape the generational curse. I'll show you that one. That one's so obvious, but I had to preach it. Okay. Back to Deuteronomy again. I'm going to make some personal applications here. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Now, I know many of you here, at some point in your life in the past, were pagan, and you were idolaters. There's a lot of ways to be an idolater. Some of them religious and some of them irreligious. I was a pagan idolater myself. Some of you were religious pagan idolaters, and you actually bowed before statues and, and said prayers to deceased people and so on. You know what I'm talking about. And you repented and came to Christ. I have now, in well over 30 years of ministry, seen generations of people blessed because a family got out of their idolatry. They got out, and they took their children with them. And they took their children into a godly, gospel-preaching church, and they sat their children under the teaching of the Bible. Say, no longer do we bow to the idol. No longer do we say prayers to the dead. No longer do we practice these things. Now we're going to teach the Bible. 
And the children, whether they like it or not, learn the Bible. And some of those children grow up, many of them, and serve God and teach the Bible to their children. And they grow up. Not always. It's always possible to rebel, and they serve God. And to those of you who have done so, I thank God for his loving kindness that he showed you. And if your children are serving God, your children, I promise you, thank God that at some point you had enough of the idolatry and you got out and you came to Christ. Amen? You're blessed. You're blessed. And maybe today you're still in the pagan idolatry. Get out. God will bless you. It'll be a blessing to you and to everybody associated with you for you to be in covenant relationship with God. So, we'll bless our children if we get out. But it can work the other way around. Deuteronomy 32, 19 and 20, the Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I, I, I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. Now this one is even more alarming. And this is the one that's most applicable today in our evangelical movement. It's absolutely possible for people with a godly heritage whose father and grandfather and great-grandfather served God, taught the Bible, and believed the gospel to become then pagan in later generations. And... It's possible for people who call themselves evangelical to turn their children over to the pagans, to turn their children over to paganism. And this is precisely what's going on. There's there's nothing that can be more applicable today. Let me give you an example. There's a course of study called spiritual formation that is now required by the accrediting agencies for evangelical college. And so they they bring in pagan practices and call it spiritual formation. They bring in the Lectio Divina and the the, uh, prayer labyrinth and the contemplative prayer and the mysticism. And uh, some actually, as I showed you on the slide last week, some actually just bring Catholic practices in. Here's how you get close to God. Here's how you feel close to God. Here's how you're going to change. Why not just go back to uh, Exodus and say, here's your God that brought you out of Egypt, the golden calf. This is not how your grandfather served God. I don't remember any prayer labyrinths in a Baptist church in 1955. When I was saved in 71, I didn't, we never heard about any of this stuff. We were told the Bible means what it says. We didn't say, well, you know, pick a page and what word jumps out at you, then you get your revelation. We were told not to do that. There was a godly generation that taught us the truth. And today, people who are in charge of our institutions are saying to evangelical young people, paganism is the way to go. Have at it. Whole movements arising for young people predicated on paganism. A perverse generation, sons in whom there's no faithfulness. Do you think there won't be any consequences for this? There are great consequences for serving God according to his terms, and there are great harm for not. 
What do you think is going to happen to those kids that we turn over to the pagans to be educated? What's going to happen to them? What do you think they're going to do with their kids? Okay, well, we had the prayer labyrinth when I was uh, 20 years old, and we had all these practices. And how much worse is it going to get to the next generation and the one after that? And pretty soon there's no such thing as evangelicalism. Only paganism. Dear ones, flee. Flee from idolatry. Flee to the Lord. Let's train our kids. Let's make a commitment that we're going to train our kids in the Bible. And we're going to warn them against the practices of the pagans. And we're going to teach them to train their kids in the way of the Lord. And let's stick with what God gave us. We have a great heritage and we're throwing it away. It's, it's, it's loathsome. It's terrible. It's alarming. You know, nothing's really changed, but um, we need to be warned. Okay, now let's get down to the real nitty-gritty here. There's a generational curse. It's worse than every other generational curse that has ever been or ever will be. It is the curse that came upon the human race when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, listened to Satan, and set out to become like God, knowing good and evil. And look at what it says here. This, this is just stark. The statement is breathtaking for its brevity, but it's clarity. Just this first part of this, just listen. As in Adam, all die. When Adam rebelled, his entire posterity, everyone that would come after him, every human being and every race, every language, every tongue, whoever would ever live on the earth, died. Both legally and according to their nature. He bore sons in his image, and that was the fallenness. So we come into the world with Adam's guilt, imputed to our account, and we practice his sin as well. But let's read the rest of it. So also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, it may sound like universalism here, but let me explain this. What do you have to do to be in Adam? Nothing. <laughs> All you do is be born. If you're born, you're an Adam. You didn't have to make any choices. You don't have to do a thing. You'll stay there. What do you have to do to be in Christ? You got it. <laughs> you're thinking, be born again. You must be born again. Jesus said that. You must be born again. The only escape from the curse is to be born again. It's the only way to not be an Adam. It's the only way to not be under sin. It's the only way not to be under the principalities and powers. The only way is to be born again. How can a person be born again? Nicodemus asked that question. How can a person be born again? Well, let me explain what that means. Jesus Christ existed from all eternity as God and with God. All right? I say that because I don't want anybody thinking Jesus is just some guy who started a religion like Muhammad. And he came into this world... And as I said earlier in John, it says he was full of grace and truth. He embodied the very characteristics of God because he was God incarnate. And as much as Yahweh on Mount Sinai is full of loving kindness and truth, Jesus on earth was full of grace and truth. And he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. 
He claimed that if they crucified him, that he'd be raised on the third day. And he also demonstrated all of the reality of his claims by the many great miracles that he did. And he was crucified, and he was indeed raised on the third day and appeared to many witnesses, as Paul said earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why did Jesus come and die? Well, he was the sinless one, and when John the Baptist saw him walking into human history, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And every one of those Jewish people would have had to think about the Passover. Remember, they had the lamb, and they put the blood on the doorpost, and the angel of, or the messenger of death actually passed over them. Now, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, he shed his blood to avert God's wrath against the sin of those who would believe in him. We're all sinners and lawbreakers. That's why we need Christ. We're all in Adam. Let's just get down to the nitty-gritty right here. Why do we need Christ? Because we're in Adam. And we're dead. How are we going to be born again? The Bible says repent and believe the gospel. Those people who turn to Christ, as I said earlier, many of you have. Many of you ran from, you left the idols behind and you came to Christ. And you come to serve the living and the true God according to his terms. Maybe some of you haven't yet. But you can believe on him and trust him and turn to him and serve him on his terms. And you will be born of the Spirit. And you will be alive spiritually. And you will have the blessing of Abraham. You will be delivered from the curse. In fact, I have one more slide. I want to make sure this is so simple, everybody gets it. One more slide. It's from Jeremiah 17, back into the Old Testament for our last slide. You want to be blessed and not cursed? Here we go. You don't need a shaman. You don't need a word of knowledge. Thus saith the Lord, Yahweh says this, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. What's the converse? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. There you go. My dear friends, trust in the Lord and you will be blessed and don't let anybody try to tell you otherwise. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.